Good morning again, 59th Street uh, family. We welcome those of you who are joining us a little bit later today as we continue in our sermon series, The Story, where we explore uh, the grand narrative that God has been planning from the start of the universe till its very end. Uh, now, last week, we covered that God began to do something both old and new as we moved forward into the New Testament, as we move forward in salvation history. Uh, we talked about the new covenant that was inaugurated through Christ's death and through Christ's resurrection. And today we're going to move forward, we're going to continue forward in the story, and we're going to see God's next step forward. And we're going to see that God does something that is both old and new at the same time, just like last week, as he establishes a new community of people that we today call the church. Uh, but before we talk about the church, I think a helpful analogy to help us think about this old and new um, is to for us as New Yorkers to think about the Twin Towers. After 9-11 and the tragedy that transpired, um, I think there was a collective sense of emptiness in all New Yorkers. Um, I remember I was uh, driving with uh, Pastor Stephen, or rather he was driving, um, and I was just listening to him speak, and he would mention that as he's going home to New Jersey, he would see the New York skyline, and after 9-11, he just felt this deep emptiness, this void, that something was missing, because indeed something was missing. And of course, physically, the New York skyline has changed and became emptier, but not seeing the Twin Towers created a sort of emptiness inside the New Yorkers' spirits. It was our pride, it was our joy, uh, it was a representation of what happens when New Yorkers gather together to come together to create something that is incredible, right? It's not just a demonstration of our hard work, but it's also a demonstration of what we can do as a community of people. And so for a time, we see as New Yorkers built not just one of the largest skyscrapers of the world, but they built two of the largest skyscrapers that humanity has ever seen. And every time, we would see it, whether on a drive home or taking the train to and from the city, we would see it proudly standing above every single other building in the city. And so when it was destroyed through a horrific act of terror, there's a profound emptiness inside our hearts. And for a period of time, we know that that area kind of stood vacant, um, empty, like a missing tooth, as many New Yorkers would describe it. But when one World Trade Center began its construction, there was a renewed sense of energy. There was a renewed sense of excitement and hope uh, that this one new tower is not just going to be another skyscraper, but it took on a symbolic meaning of the grittiness of New Yorkers, of our resolve, but also of our hope that even if you knock us down, we'll get up and we'll do it bigger and we'll do it better. And the beautiful thing about this new tower, the One World Trade, is that it's actually an homage to the old. It looks back to the old. It's a memory of the past, what used to be. Uh, for those who don't know, the tower's observation deck starts at exactly 1,362 feet. And there's a glass parapet that extends up another six feet to 1,368 feet. And those were the exact heights of the South and North Towers, respectively. And for those of you who also remember, there was also another famous tree called uh, the Survivor Tree, which was one of the only trees that lived through the 9-11 attack. And it's now planted on the site of One World Trade as a symbol of rebirth. 
And while it's an homage to the old, it's also something that is, of course, new. It's visually beautiful, it's vibrant, um, it's one of the safest and greatest buildings created here, and for New Yorkers, it gives us a renewed sense of energy and of hope. It restored our identities and it gave us the push we need to continue to make this city one of the greatest cities in the world. And the reason why I bring this up is that this is actually a lot like what happened in Scripture. After Israel lost the promised land through their own act of terror, the nation was never really back as a whole ever since. Over and over, they've been dominated and ruled by stronger and larger nations. Over and over, they've tried to fight back to restore their promised land, to restore what was once lost. But unfortunately, over and over, the Israelites, as God's people, were defeated. And for 400 years after Malachi, the very last prophet that spoke in Israel, there was 400 years of silence in the land. For 400 years, God did not raise up a new prophet. For 400 years, nothing new was revealed to the Jewish people. But when Christ came, there was a renewed sense of energy. There was a renewed sense of urgency. Something new was happening, but at the same time, it paid an homage to the old. Like One World Trade, there was a new development that was happening in salvation history. And one of these new developments that was happening is that, these, is that there was the formation of the church. And this formation of the church gave the disciples and all the Christians, all the early Christians at least, so much hope, so much energy, and so much renewal. And today we're going to be taking a look at what exactly is this church. And so let's take a look at that in our passage today that comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 to 10. And it reads, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And they stumble because they do not obey the message, uh, for they disobey the message, which is also uh, that which they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now in our passage, just like in last week's sermon, we see again something old and something new. We see that God pays homage to the book of Exodus, uh, in our passage, we see Peter describing the church as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And the other place, the only other place we see this is in the book of Exodus, right? In chapter 19, after God releases the Israelites from bondage, after he redeems them and accepts them as his people, Yahweh also tells them, tells these Israelites that they are his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, 
and a holy nation. And so by repeating these title, titles, Peter makes a theological point that this new community of God is actually an homage to the old. So how exactly are we an homage to the old community of God? The first way is that we actually inherit all of the privileges of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was described in many ways. Israel was described as God's children, Yahweh's bride, the descendants of Abraham, uh, the true heirs of God's kingdom. But in the New Testament, all of those titles, all of those privileges are transferred to us. The church is now the bride of Christ. We who have faith in Christ are counted as Abraham's descendants. In Christ, we are also now co-heirs with Christ, and that just as Christ is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, we who are Christ's body are counted as God's very own sons and daughters. And because we are the children of God and co-heirs with Christ, we are also the new, or actually the true heirs of God's kingdom. And we are the ones who will enjoy the covenant blessings that come from God alone. But not only are we the recipients of God's privileges given to the Israelites in the old, but we also pay an homage to the original people of God by being the community that fulfills all promises given to Abraham. And two of those promises were that Abraham's descendants would be as uncountable as the stars in the sky or the sand in the seashore, uh, but also that all people on earth would be blessed through Abraham. So concerning the uncountability of God's people, in ancient Israel at least, the peak number of Israelites would have reached maybe about 4.5 million people by some estimates, uh, which is nothing to scoff at 3,000 years ago. But by no stretch of the imagination would Abraham ever think that the number of his descendants, the number of Christians today, would reach over 2.2 billion people and growing annually. And just to wrap our mind over how large 2.2 billion is, 4.5, which is the number of Israelites back then, 4.5 million seconds is 52 days. Pretty long. 2.2 billion seconds is 25,463 days. Truly, Abraham's descendants, through our faith in Christ, have, has reached a point where it's, it's literally as numerous as the stars in the sky. But not only are the descendants of Abraham nearly uncountable, but through the church, Abraham truly became a blessing to all nations as people from every culture, from every nationality, from every social status receive freedom and salvation through the gospel message. And so we see that the church, in many ways, is an homage to the old by receiving the titles and privileges of the old community of God, but also by being a fulfillment of the promises from the Old Testament. However, there's a big problem. How did these early Christians separate themselves from the rest of Israel? How did they identify themselves apart from their Jewish brothers and sisters who did not believe? This was actually the very, very first problem that the early Jews, the early Christians, had to figure out because they, they, they clearly saw there's something different between the early Jewish converts and the rest of the Jewish people. And so the question is, what is new? And there are many new things, but I think I can probably focus on two things. The first thing is that, uh, the first thing that is new is that what separates someone from being part of the people of God is no longer bound 
by ethnic or national boundaries. Um, in the Old Testament, to be part of the community of God was to become an Israelite yourself, right? To live in the land of Israel, to adopt the culture of Israel, to worship Yahweh in the temple that was in Israel, in Jerusalem. That's why throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament in Acts, you'd always see Jewish believers try to make converts follow specific Jewish culture and specific Jewish rituals. But because the church is now considered to be the body of God with Christ as the head, then this new people of God actually transcends all national, all cultural identity. Although we still live in this world or might be citizens of one nation or another nation, our true identity is found when we identify ourselves as citizens of God's kingdom. That is what it means to be in this world, but not of the world. To live in America, not as Americans, but as citizens of God's divine kingdom, where we are ruled by Christ as our king. And this is one of the crucial steps forward for the early church. They saw themselves ethnically and nationally as Jews, but they also understood that they were different from those from who they once were. They understood that they were different from the other Jews who did not accept Jesus. And throughout the book of Acts, you would see this tension, this sort of wrestling as disciples and as early believers tried to figure out what that key difference was until they realized that the key separation between the disciples and all the other Jews was Christ as their king. They no longer saw themselves bound to the same religious food laws or other specific Jewish rituals because they understood they're now citizens of Christ's kingdom that, know, know, that actually knows no ethnic or cultural boundaries. And so what's the result of this magnificent new kingdom? Well, all people from all corners of the world joined the church, from Greeks and Romans to early converts in Spain and Europe, all the way to China and Asia and also India as well. All people from all nations joined this new kingdom of God from every single corner of the world, and the promise of Israel to be a blessing to all nations was fulfilled. And so that is the first new thing to happen for God's new people, that as a people of God, we are ruled by Christ and we are citizens of a kingdom that transcends all national and transcends all ethnic boundaries. The second new thing that separates these new people of God from the old is that these new people of God have unparalleled access to the Holy Spirit. If you look in the Old Testament, God's Spirit was actually given to a very select few number of people. You could probably count it out. It would probably be less than 100. For each judge in the book of Judges, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, but just for a little while, just so that they could accomplish their mission. After they finished their mission, the spirits left. The prophets were also filled with the Spirit to prophesy and condemn wicked rulers, but out of the millions of Israelites, there, again, were only a small handful. And so what the reality for most Israelites was at that time, if you're a people of God, if you're, if you're part of the people of God during the Old Testament, 99.9% of them were not filled by the Holy Spirit. The, the vast majority of the people of God were not filled by the Holy Spirit. They might experience God through temple or through the worship. Uh, they might experience God through, through their various rituals, 
but there was unfortunately always a layer of separation between God and humanity, just like with oil and water. No matter how close they wanted to be with God, they could never commune with him. They could never be with him. Why? Because of the corruption that was in their hearts. But through Christ's blood shed for us and for our sins to be permanently removed from our hearts, God not only delights to be with us, but God delights to make his dwelling in us. And that sounds absolutely bizarre, right? To imagine God in us. But the point of the Holy Spirit making his dwelling in us is that the new people of God would be able to experience the divine in a fundamentally new and different way. That through the indwelling of the Spirit, there is now a marriage between human beings who are made in the image of God and God himself. That one of the defining marks of this new community is that there is a sacred union between God and man, which was something that not even Adam and Eve were able to experience. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I want to ask you, do you see your life as one that is united with God? And I don't mean this in the sense of behaviors or moral duties. I mean this in the sense of your identity, that who you are as a person is someone who is united with the one and only God. Man and woman, through marriage, are united to be one flesh. But through the indwelling of the Spirit, you and Christ are united as one body in the holiest of unions. And this is perhaps, in my opinion at least, one of the most beautiful parts of what it means to be part of this new people of God, the church. That we're no longer separated from God, but that we are literally united with God as the Holy Spirit makes his dwelling in us. And so we see that so far we, we talked about having, you know, the people of God or the, the church being an homage to the old. We saw what is new. Well, one question that is left unanswered is, well, now what? Like, oh, so what? Like, what's our purpose as the people of God? We're the new people of God, but what are we called to do? Or more specifically, maybe, what are we called to be? And the thing is, if we are united with Christ, since we are his body, then one of the things we're called to be is to be Christ in this world. If Christ is the man from heaven, then the church, as his body, should embody the life and should embody the power of heaven and to live it out in this world. That as the people of God gather together, whether here in this physical church building or in someone's home or even outside, it should be a foretaste of life in God's kingdom. It should be a reflection of God's kingdom and its values. That as the people of God gather, it is a gathering of love, a gathering of joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is a place where we grow, not just as human beings, but where we grow into spiritual maturity as we collectively encourage one another to grow into Christ-likeness. It is a kingdom marked by love, a kingdom marked by service, and a kingdom marked by hope and joy. That as people come together, this is what they should experience. But not only are we called to gather to be the embodiment of Christ, but we're also called to be sent into the world as conquerors. 
that as we go into the world, we are like the salt or the yeast that spreads throughout the dough. That as we pursue justice in the world around us, we are literally fighting against the kingdom of Satan by transforming our neighborhood to reflect the kingdom of God. That as we pursue the revival of souls around us, we are spreading the boundaries of God's kingdom inch by inch. You see, in the past, Israel stayed in their little corner of the world. But as God's salvation history moves forward, God's kingdom also advances and grows beyond national boundaries. And so we, who are the ambassadors of Christ, are called to fight, to grow this kingdom, and to spread its boundaries against the forces of sin in order to transform this world to resemble the world above. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope today, hopefully at least, you've gained a clear understanding of who we are as a church. We are, without a doubt, an homage to the old as we take on the identity of Israel from the Old Testament, but at the same time, we are something that is entirely new as well. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and we also enjoy this profoundly new union with God. And because of this, we are given a purpose by God to be the salt and the light of the world, to spread the kingdom wherever we are by transforming our surroundings to resemble the kingdom above. And we do all of this through the power of the Holy Spirit and through our own faithfulness to God's mission. And so as, as we end our sermon today, I, I would like to end uh, with a quote from uh, one of the greatest missiologists of our times. Uh, his name is Leslie Newbegin, and he says this, God's mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot be suppressed. It must be told. Who can be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. So brothers and sisters, I encourage us today to be life-givers for God's kingdom wherever we are. Why don't we come together in prayer? Father, we thank you for electing us to be part of your kingdom and to be part of your people who you call as the church. Today, we gather here in this building, and we know we gather here today with a purpose. We gather here to praise you for your graciousness, but we also gather here today to be energized, to be revitalized before we go back out into the world to change it into your likeness. And so we pray, Lord, that as we go out to the harvest, the fields, that you'll empower us through your spirit, which is in us. Give us the strength, Lord, to, to continue to endure. Allow us to find our true purpose in being citizens of your kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.